we stand up, please? <clears throat> Sometimes I get to, almost every week I get to be with the little kids and we sing songs and a lot of times we have motions and this one happened to be relevant today so I thought I would uh, inflict it on you for a moment, okay? <clears throat> These are the fruits of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit. Love, we draw a heart. Joy, big smile, point to our face. Peace, patience. Give yourself a hug. This is kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Let's put your fist in your hand over there. Gentleness, like you're petting a kitty. And self-control. One more time. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All right, good job. Give yourself a hand. Go ahead and have a seat. So love, joy, number two in that list is what we're talking about this morning, joy, joy. We're in the series, not in but of. We're not in the world. We are in the world, but not of the world. You want to be in the world, but not of the world. You don't want to be not in the world and of the world. You don't want to be in the world and of the world. You want to be in the world and not of the world. Everybody scrambled? All right. One of my goals this morning is that we have fun and that you have a sense of joy. That when you leave here, you say, wow, we were in God's presence and it was a joyful thing. It was a good thing. And I want to be there more often. I want to stay there. Okay? And the other thing is, I know the Steelers played last night, but if I go as long as I did in the first service, they will be playing again by the time I finish. So hopefully, I'll be a little more concise today, this time. So let's look at this verse. Here's where I'm focusing, and I'm going to branch out from here, so to speak. But now I am coming to you. This is Jesus praying to the Father. He says, but now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they, he's speaking of his disciples, they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So we want to think about this morning what it means to have his joy fulfilled in us, right? And so the question that I'm asking is, is it possible to live in this world, in the real big bad world, and have be full of joy, to be fulfilled, overflowing with joy. Well, yeah, because we're in church. You got to say yes, right? (laughs) You got to say yes. So the real question is, how is that possible? How do we... How do we figure out a way to to get through this life? Because you're going to get through it one way or another. How are you going to get from here to there, from point A to point B, your one-on-one basics, and going on from there? That's an inside joke. That's really only, only one person got that one. But how do you get from here to there full of joy, full of his joy? What does that look like? How can we do it? So that's what I want to answer and wrestle with this morning. So let's try another little experiment. You guys have already been good interacting, and I'm going to watch you. There were some grumpy Gus's in the first service that wouldn't, that wouldn't interact. So this one, you don't have to stand up. But we're going to say, I want you to get your, your most grumpy, I can't believe this is happening face on, the big stink face. And I want you to say, with that face, I am joyful. <laughs> say it. I am joyful. Now look at somebody and say, I am joyful. I am joyful. All right? All right, so now let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum. Big saccharine grin. I am joyful. I am joyful. And look at somebody and scare them. I am joyful. (laughs) The moment you knew you were in a cult, right? (laughs) Repeat after me. Repeat after me. So here we are in America, land of the free, home of the brave. Our inalienable rights, life, liberty, and... The pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of happiness. I was thinking about the pursuit of happiness, and I started to think about uh, somebody that I met a few years ago. I had the occasion to 
to be the celebrant, the, the officiant for a wedding at a, at a property not far from me on Old Black Hawk Road up in Beaver County, a place called Wally World. Here's proof that Wally World exists. Some of you might be thinking about a different Wally World. Oh, oh, sorry, folks. Wally World is closed. It's not that Wally World. It's this Wally World. First time I met, I think his name was Wally, but I met him. He was sitting on a John Deere, had a can of beer there. He's like, welcome to Wally World. And I was there to do a wedding, and they were on horseback, and it was a little bit weird. Uh, you'll see there's a, there's a fishing lake that's stocked there. And the story that somebody told me, and I can't remember now how or who it was, but I, I took it to be true, is that he was going through a terrible time in his life, the breakup of his marriage. He was losing his house. <clears throat> He owned this piece of property. He was just sitting there. He was out there having some adult beverages with his buddies. And uh, <clears throat> as the evening progressed, he, he got inspired to get on his, uh, his bulldozer and start digging some dirt. And as he dug the dirt, he happened to hit a spring, a natural spring. And that was the beginning of this lake. He, he dug it all out, dammed it up, and stocked it with fish. And it became, it's an 80-acre property, which I don't think he owns any longer. But it became this kind of oasis in the middle of... Uh, of, of Beaver County uh, where people could come and do weddings, people could go camping, uh, go hunting, go fishing. Um, and uh, I was there. My daughters actually swam in that lake. I thought my youngest daughter drowned in that lake, but thankfully she's here this morning, so that was a happy ending to that. <clears throat> but anyways, he was trying to make sense. He was trying to find his way after a devastating loss. He was trying to rebuild his life, trying to find a sense of meaning and purpose in his life after losing pretty much what we might say he lost everything. And yet here he was in the ashes of that saying, where do I go from here? And he found some meaning and some purpose in that. So I was thinking about this whole idea of the pursuit of happiness and, and the relationship of happiness and joy. And I, I started to look at, uh, just look around on the internet and try to find where are people's heads at? Where are people's minds at when they think about happiness? And I found some TED Talks. Anybody a fan of TED Talks? Really, I, I think they're really fascinating. They're usually like these 15-minute, really concise and uh, interesting. You know, it stands for technology, entertainment, and design. And so all, all kinds of disciplines and spectrums, you can hear everything from the nature of consciousness to joy and happiness. And uh, several of the, the presenters were people who had been very successful in their lives. And then as they got along and they accomplished all their goals, they found a sense of emptiness. And is this all there is? I don't know if you can relate to that kind of feeling in your own life. And so some of them just set it all aside and said, I'm starting over again and I'm going to stop and I'm going to notice the beautiful moments and the meaningful moments. And, and one person uh, he talked about joy being something that's inconvenient, joy that something that, and, and many of us, if we thought at all about this, we would say, well, happiness is something that's more on the surface and something that's related to happen, what happens to us or what we make happen, right? In, in a dictionary definition would say it's related to luck, right? Whereas joy is something deeper, whereas happiness might be out there, joy is something in here, it's something cultivated, something that's deeper, something that's more pervasive, that lasts, Right? But what's interesting is in, even in these TED Talks where you might say, well, they don't understand who Jesus is and they may or may not. Some of them didn't speak about it, but I don't know. But anytime somebody hits on truth, anytime somebody uncovers a piece of reality, it's real. And it's real whether or not you know it. It's real whether or not you believe it. But, but, so somebody said, uh, joy, I found that joy happens in community. Joy happens in relationship. And if you think about it, you can't really experience joy unless it's in relationship to something or somebody. Even if it's just you, you can be marveling at nature. Well, you're interacting with creation. You're interacting with this beautiful sunset. And in that sense, there's a, there's a relationship going on there that gives you joy. One person said that, that happiness is what happens and joy is the meaning of what happens. So we have a baby that's born and that's a, it's an occasion of great joy. Well, what happened was the baby was born. 
But the joy is in the meaning of it. We have somebody that's being added to the family. We have the miracle of life, the miracle of birth, right? And of course, we say it's not about circumstance or it's deeper than circumstance, meaning that at 3 a.m. when you're feeding and when you're changing, when there's the temper tantrums, all of those things can be absorbed. All those things you can walk through because there's a deeper meaning and you understand that. And so that gives you a source of, of joy, of delight, of pleasure in that relationship and in the meaning of that relationship. So some of you, Bereans, good people, very astute, students of the Bible, if you've been in church for a while, usually when somebody says joy, you think joy versus happiness, and they're two different things. You might have been thinking that already. Joy, Bruce alluded to it, and I think that's valid and that's true, right? We could say joy is about me, God, uh, joy is about God, Happiness is about me. That would be one way to put it in very stark categories, right? These things are, are, are valid. They're true. And I've heard sermons. Have any of you heard a sermon that, that kind of went through and parsed out the differences? This is happiness. This is joy. And of course, the right answer is joy. I want joy, 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 right? But as you look in the scriptures, and if you think, consider joy, joy in the scriptures is not really set against happiness. It's not instead of or better than happiness. Usually happiness and joy kind of collapse into each other. Happiness is, relate, is only in the Bible you know, a handful of times, whereas joy is pervasive through the whole thing. And joy is usually set against what? Sorrow. It's set against loss. Think about the Psalms. Weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Right? We're going to see this morning that, that there was sorrow, and there was loss, and there was a sense of despair going on in the context that we're going to find Jesus in, especially among his disciples. And yet he's promising them joy even in the midst of all that's going on. But what we're fighting against is a sense of despair. What we're fighting against is a sense of hopelessness, a sense of meaninglessness in existence. What's it all about? Why am I here? What's the point? How do I go on, right? Real talk. We're talking about what it's like when your legs get cut out from under you. What it's like when your heart feels like it literally broke because somebody betrayed you, somebody abandoned you, something that you dreamed about, something that you were building has collapsed to the ground. That's what we're talking about. That's joy in the midst of circumstances, right? So this morning... As, as true as it might be that joy and happiness are two different things, that's not the main thrust of what I hope that we can walk away with. What I want us to walk away with is this unshakable conviction that joy is possible in the worst of circumstances, in the darkest night, even in the midst of that weeping. Sorrow may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning, and joy can take you through that night of weeping. Amen? So let me define my understanding of, of what we're talking about this morning when we say my joy and fulfilled. This picture I saw really made me think of joy. That, to me, there's a sense of, of delight, abandonment, of, of pleasure, of deep pleasure, of carelessness in the best sense of the word, fearlessness, not a worry, not a care. Life is good, right? And Jesus says, my joy, my joy, I want my joy to be in them, my joy to be in you. What does it mean when he says, my joy, my joy? Let's put it in context. Here we are in John 17. What's going on? He's praying for his disciples, and, he's, and he's, we'll see, he prays for all those who would believe through their message. So he's praying about the movement that he started in the context of knowing that he's going to be betrayed, abandoned. He's going to be arrested and brutalized. He's told them that he's going to be crucified, and he knows what that means. And what is his concern in that moment? Is he having a pity party? Is he feeling sorry for himself? Is he looking around and saying, really, God? Is this really how it's going to go? After all I did for these people? That's not his, his heart at all. That's not where he's at. He's, he's, his overarching concern is these ones that I've called out of the world. I've called them to myself. I've given them your word. 
And I want them to have my joy in them. I want them to experience that sense of relationship that I have with you, Father. And and I want them to have that sense of excitement and deep pleasure that comes from being connected to purpose and meaning in, in life. The way that I made them to function. And I want them to know that, to experience that, the fullness of that. So that's a little bit of what it means to have his joy. Now here's what it means to be fulfilled. That's a bucket in my basement. And above it is a pipe with some stuffing in it. And the right way probably to deal with this situation would be to fix the pipe but the bucket works. (laughs) The bucket's flat on the back, so you can put it right up against the wall, and it's like it was made for it. It catches that water. When it rains, when it's a heavy rain, it catches that water. But if you don't pay attention to the bucket, it becomes fulfilled. And when you try to move that bucket, it's, it's not fun. There's a, there's a sink just a, just a couple of inches away, literally inches away from there. But, and you can't see it from here, but there's, there's some cracks here, you know, in the front. So there's a little leakage coming out the front. And then when you try to slide it oh so carefully when it's overfilled to get it to the sink, it's just splashing and splishing and getting things wet. It's not fun. But that's what I think of when I think of fulfilled. You could say another way to interpret it would be perfected or completed or made, you know, fully matured, grown up all the way. But in this sense, when we're talking about being filled with joy, we're talking about being fulfilled, overflowing. And when you bounce and you, and you, and you jostle into somebody and a circumstance jostles into you, that joy sloshes around and it starts to spill on the people around you. It starts to get outside of you and it starts to get on them. It's infectious and it spreads. And people say, wait a minute, you're going through a bad time. I would think you would be crying. I'd think you would be checking yourself into a, some, some place for evaluation. I'd think that you'd be running for the border because I don't know how you're getting through this situation. But they see it in you and it becomes a sign that God is in you, that joy is in you. It's overflowing. So that's what it... I think of to be fulfilled, to be overflowing, fulfilled with joy. That's the context. So let's look at this popular phrase because John uses this phrase numerous times. Jesus, uh, he quotes Jesus three times in chapter 15, 16, and 17. Each, in each chapter, he says this phrase. And then John goes on to use the phrase in his epistle, 1 John, where he talks about our joy being fulfilled or filled, overflowing in joy. But John the Baptist actually uses the phrase early on in chapter 3. It says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, also known as the best man, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Now notice that the image here is one of what? Of a wedding. This is where Jesus performed his first miracle, right? We have him turning water into wine. It's an occasion of celebration, both for the happening and for the meaning, the significance of it. Because as you're going to see, in every relationship that we have here, it's an image, it's an opportunity to image God. It's the image of God being put into real life. Paul says that Marriage signifies or shows us the, the Jesus and the church, right? So in your relationship, you can see on that scale, you can see that a husband and wife represent Christ and the church, right? And when, that, when that's functioning the way that, that it's intended to function, it's a source of joy. And again, it's a sign to people who see it that that relationship is, is, is overflowing with joy. But in this context here, right after this, uh, John the baptizer says, he must increase and I must decrease. So in other words, he's connected with his relationship with the Lamb of God, he says, who takes away the sin of the world. He's 
connected to that relationship and he's connected with his purpose and mission. And because of that, it doesn't matter to him that he's no longer the one on the stage. It matters that what's the purpose of God is being fulfilled and he's connected with that. And so because of that, he's welling up and overflowing with joy, okay? So let's go on to chapter 15. Very familiar and I'm just pulling out a part of this where he uses this phrase, where Jesus uses this phrase. He tells his disciples, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full, overflowing. So here in the context, he begins chapter 15 by saying, I am the true vine. And he's setting himself up in, in opposition to the teachers of the law, to the religious leaders of that time. He's saying, you th- think you're the authorities here, but no, I represent, I'm the true vine. I'm representing the hope of Israel. I've been sent by the Father. And as you see here, he says, I have been in obedience. I have been in relationship and I've been fulfilling what God the Father has sent me to do. And now I'm telling you to do the same thing. See, there's, there's, a, there's a relationship that, that we should not pull apart between, between the giver and the gift, between the person and the thing that he's talking about. His concern is, is, is fulfilling in his relationship to the Father. His concern is to do the heart of the Father. And he's saying the same thing to his disciples. But he's taking it deeper because he says, I am the true vine, you are the branches. And then he says again, I am the vine and you are the branches. And there's a very clear organic connection that we see here. And, and you understand this, right? That there's a, there's, a, there's a vine and there's a branch and there's an organic, real powerful connection that you are feeding from that. You are being sustained by that. You are being life, the life of the plant. Your life is flowing from the vine into you. And you remain in that. What do you need to do to remain in that? Nothing. You need to remain. You don't need to, in other words, you don't attach yourself. You're not like, whoo, I'm attaching myself to the vine. No, he says, you are already clean. Some translations say, you have already been pruned by the word that I've preached to you. He's already, because sometimes we hear pruning and we're like, oh no, oh no, I'm going in the fire, I'm not fruitful, help, help, help. But his, his assurance, the good news is, he says to his disciples, I've already, I've already, you're already joined to me. You are already pruned and you are already cleansed and you're already connected and life is flowing into you. And this is the reality that you're living in right now. You, all you have to do is stay with me. Stay in me. And when he says, and, and do my commandments, he goes on to say, love one another. Right? Love one another. And greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his friends, which he is going to demonstrate. He's going to do in, in, in their view. He's going to do as they witness it. He's going to do it on their behalf as well and on our behalf as well. I got to not go too long. Got to not go too long. Go to chapter 16. So, so here he's been talking about, I've been doing what the Father sent me to do. I'm connected to him. We are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I'm doing, I'm being obedient to what he sent me to. I'm fulfilling his, his mission and I want you to do it too. And I've, I've empowered you to do that because you've been grafted into me and you're attached to me and life is flowing from me into you and now you can have the same joy that I have. You can have that sense of pleasure and of enjoyment, of delight in all that you see, what you walk through because of what I've done for you. That's 15. So 16, he starts to talk about you're going to have opposition, persecution, you're going to suffer, there's going to be sorrow, you're going to have enemies, it's not going to be pretty but yet there's going to be joy in the midst of it and let's look at this he talks about a little while you're not going to see me then you're going to see me again and they're all talking amongst themselves I don't understand what so he says 
or he knows, Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And that's, we know now, that happened, right? They were sorrowful. They were, they were broken. They were devastated. Why were they devastated? They lost him. They lost the relationship. In their minds, as far as they knew, in the moment when everything that was about to happen happened, when he was led away in chains, when he was brutalized and put on a cross and crucified and laid in a tomb, as far as they knew, it was over. The dream was dead. They'd left everything to follow him. They've put everything behind him. They believed him. He was their reason to live. He was their purpose. He was their, they weren't afraid when they were around him. They didn't have to worry. And we know that that happened, right? All of this is in the future for them at the moment that this is, we're reading this. Okay, but we go on from there. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. Now notice again, the, the picture is one of great joy, the birth of a baby, right? But any of you who have gone through this process, this will hit home, I'm sure. She has sorrow because her hour has come, right? And I was remembering when my wife's hour had come for baby number three, it happened to be rush hour. That was the hour that had come. And it was in Boston, and when we got out onto the road, it was a parking lot, and we were 45 minutes with light, you know, if the traffic was decent, we were 45 minutes away, and Emily wasn't about to wait 45 minutes. So we stopped at this little community uh, hospital, and at that hospital, she had more sorrow because she was told, you're too far along, there's no pain medicine that we can give you now. So you have to go through this process without any numbing of the pain. It says, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. And Emily Joy was born in that little community hospital. And it's been anguish ever since. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Imagine that. Imagine living in that reality that no one, no thing, no circumstance can take from you the joy, his joy that has been implanted in you. Imagine that. Imagine that. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So here again, we have this idea. He's saying, You're going to go through persecution. I've been persecuted. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be sad. It's going to be dark days. But on the other side of those dark days, there's joy that is coming. Weeping lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Right? Joy comes when the sun rises. And rise he did. And their joy was overflowing. And What are they asking and receiving for? They're asking and receiving those things that are necessary to accomplish what he has given them to do in in their relationship with the Father now because of Christ, in Christ. Right? So now we go to chapter 17, and this is the immediate context where we're looking at what it means to have his joy overflowing in us. And it says, but now, he says to the Father, I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word 
and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So understand, when, when people bump up against that joy, when that overflowing bucket starts to spill out on them, they say, what is this? I don't know what this is. This, this doesn't, this isn't what I, you see, when, when you, you know joy when, when you see it, but it's like, huh, that's from another world. That doesn't belong here. There's too much disease. There's too much devastation. There's violence. There's, there's all these things that stress me out. There's all these dire reports and I don't know what to do with myself. And then they, they get a glimpse of joy and they say, it doesn't make any sense. It's not of this world. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world. He's saying of his disciples. They are not of the world. He's called them out of the world to be in the world and to shine for him, right? To be these beacons of joy, beacons of light and love and all that, that God is. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, consecrate, set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth, right? He's saying, I've been set apart for this. Now I'm setting them apart. Now let's set them apart so that they can continue the work in relationship with us. He says to the Father, as you sent me, I have sent them. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. For their sake, again, what is he preoccupied with? Them, somebody besides himself. And, he, and it's also connected to this deep love that he has with the Father. He says, what we want, what's in our heart to do, I've been doing, and now I want it so much for them. I want it so much for my disciples. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's praying for you. He's praying for you in those moments, right? Can you imagine to have the presence of mind that you're about to be tortured, beaten, and, and, and crucified, executed, and you're thinking about everyone else? It happens. It happens. You'll see it sometimes. You'll see somebody in a hospital. They got tubes coming out of them. How's, how's Andy doing? How's he, what are you talking about? How's he doing? Why? Because they have this concern. Where does that concern come from? From the heart of the Father. When you see it, you recognize it. That's the heart of the Father. Selflessness, sacrificial love, unconditional love, joy in the midst of the worst, deepest, darkest, ugliest scenario. It exists. And you say, this, this has to be more than this. It has to be from somewhere else. And he prays that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. See, words, language is failing. How can you communicate? How can you communicate the union between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? How can you communicate in, in language that anyone can understand? The closest he comes is if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am in him and he is in me. I do what he says. We're indistinguishable and, and yet we are distinct. So he says that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Now imagine that. The, the vine and the branches. How is this happening? This is a reality that is coming true in front of our very eyes that predates all of us and yet we live in it now, this reality that he has accomplished what he was praying right there. That he has made us all one and that he has brought us into the life that he is, who he is and what he does. You and I have been brought into that miraculously. If that is your foundation, how could you have anything but joy? How could you be shaken? It's easier than you think to be shaken, isn't it? I've been shaken for sure. That they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And if you go back and look at this whole passage, all this kind of language about us and him and him and us and all of this just being brought together in this union of God and, and, and humanity, of heaven and earth being joined together. It's a beautiful and powerful thing. 
So I've been saying it over and over again, but I hope you're, you're picking up on it now, that I think that two pillars of what we talk about to have his joy fulfilled in us is to connect with a sense of purpose and meaning and to be connected in relationship. Paul writes about it this way in Colossians 1. He's speaking about Christ and he says, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Meaning that when Jesus came, when he was born, he brought with him the Father and the Holy Spirit. He came in the fullness, the full expression of who God was. He's the exact image, right? And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself, reconcile means to bring back together all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So this is the reality that we live in now. This is the reality that he is talking about in John 17 as he's praying for them. This is what's gonna come true. This is what already came true when he took on flesh, when he became as we are to make us like he is, right? That is what is going on. Consider, again, in the context, John 17, he's praying, he says, amen. He looks up and what does he see? The temple guards and Roman soldiers and Judas stabbing him in the back, coming to betray him, coming to take him into custody. And what does he say? Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. And he says what? I am. I am. I am am he. And they fall to the ground. They fall to the ground. He answers them as the son of God. He shows them in that moment. in, In one phrase. I could decimate this whole scene. I could walk over top of you. And then what does he do? Who are you seeking? What, what was it? What did you say? Huh? What? Huh? Huh? Jesus of Nazareth. And now he answers as a man. I am he. Take me. This is what I came for. I, I feel like, and I don't know if I'm on shaky ground, But I feel like in that one moment, we get a picture of the eternal son who is fully God and the son of man who is fully us. And yet because of the relationship, because he came to accomplish something, he restrains his power. It's it's not in his nature to submit as God. Do you understand that? In, In God's being, there's no sense of like, oh, There's no weakness, there's no lack, there's no, okay, yeah, I'll take one for the team. That's not who God is. So in his his divinity, he speaks a word and they hit the ground. But that's not why he's there in the moment, not to show off his power, but to show his love. Because when they saw, when, when he saw that what he had created, this good creation, was lapsing into non-being, when it was going to dust, when it was being destroyed, it was the love of God that said, I will not let this happen. He gave a resounding no to our no to him. And he said yes. And he came. And he rescued us. He literally rescued us. But in that moment, he says, I am he. Take me to fulfill the purpose. This is why I was sent. All right. Let's take a look at this picture. Again, John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches, right? But he's not speaking about grapes. He's not speaking about wine, right? He's speaking about the fruit of a life that is connected to his life. He's talking about us producing works of righteousness, which is, that's a churchy sounding thing. It means that we begin to act like him, think like him, and walk around here doing the things that he did. It means that we 
speak hope into people's lives. We bring healing. We bring deliverance. We lift up the downtrodden. We bring the ones that are on the margins back in. We rescue the ones that have wandered away. That's what it looks like. And where does joy play in this? You walk through your life and people are going, something, something there, something. You went through, you went through hell. It seemed like the worst thing ever. And yet here you are. How does it work? How can you possibly sing? How can you raise your hands? How can you have hope? How can you have any sense of, of, of empowerment? Right? That's what happens when people rub up against, when we bump up and our joy spills on them. That those kinds of works, those kinds of things that happen naturally, right? Naturally they happen because why? Because we're remaining in him, we're abiding in him and his life is pouring out through us and that life looks like love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All those things are being produced by his life flowing through us, right? So check this out. Let's look again at at Wally World. So the real reason that this struck me, the deepest reason that this struck me, yes, he was putting his life back together. Yes, he was looking for purpose. But the deeper thing that struck me was he had that there all the time, but he didn't know it was there. That water that's filling that lake was living in the property that he owned. You have a never-ending spring of joy that wells up from within you whether or not you know it. So objectively, you could say, I am full of joy. I might look like a sourpuss. I might be walking around like there's no hope. I might walk around through life thinking that there's no meaning or no purpose or that nobody loves me or that God has rejected me. But those are lies. Those aren't true. What's true is, that when the dirt gets moved around, you find the spring. Listen to, what, listen to what Jesus says. He says, whoever believes in me, this is in John chapter seven, the last day of this great feast. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Out of his heart, really, it's out of this internal deep place. It's the same place when he says to Nicodemus, when Nicodemus says, how can I be born again? Can I go back in my mother's womb? Same word, womb, heart. And, and it's the insides of us. It's the depths of us. It's the core of us. And he says, whoever believes in me, these things will pour out of him. And then it says, he's speaking of the spirit whom those who believed in him were were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus had not been glorified. Again, this is, he's prophesying, he's telling them, he's foretelling what's about to happen. And later on in chapter 14, he's speaking to them about the gift of the spirit that would come from the father. The gift, it would say, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Right? The spirit will be in you and and the spirit implanted in you, the spirit from within there will well up. Because so many times, what is joy? If we think of happiness, we're, we're, we're pursuing, we're reaching for something, we're looking for something out there, up there, over there, somewhere there, somewhere not now, not here. And Jesus says, joy is here. Joy is now. Joy is me and I am in you. We go back to Galatians and we we don't turn there right now. That's fine. But the, the fruits of the spirit are set against the works of the flesh. And if you look at that, if you go and look in Galatians 5, you'll see everything about the works of the flesh is self-centered. It's it's. It's pleasure, but it's pleasure for me. It's, 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 in, a, it's in a lack of or, or vacuum in terms of relationship. It's, it's cut off from those around you. It's cut off. It's like a branch cut off from the vine. You know, and, and he says, those are the works of the flesh. So what I'm saying that all of life, marriage, birth, your career, all of these things, 
All of these things have the potential to be an image of who God is. On different scales of reality, you can see that the, the, the love you have for science, your inquisitive mind, your ability to take things apart and put things back together, your desire to create works of art or to build things with your hands, all of these are evidence of the relationship and that connection with the Father. He's put it in you. So there's nothing wrong with all of these earthly things because they come from him. The question is, where are we looking for the source of our meaning? Where are we looking for our source of relationship? So in that event where your guts are ripped out when somebody betrays and disappoints you and breaks your heart, if that's all you have, if that's the depth of, of your understanding of what relationship is, then you have nowhere to turn. If you're looking to yourself for that joy, if you're looking somehow to put it together, or if you're trying to understand, well, my career was going so well, but now I have this this injury and I I can't continue to do what I was going to do, and what does that mean? All that I've worked for is gone. But if you look away from yourself, if you look deeper to where that source comes from, if you can look and if you can start there rather than starting with you, then you can experience joy even in the midst of grave disappointment. This is what I want to convince you of this morning. That this is, this is where we start. We start by agreeing with him against our skepticism, against our doubts, against our experience or circumstance. And we say yes to his yes. So what I'm trying to convince you is that, that that's what's real. That his love, his joy, that this life that flows up from within you is there. And even the uncovering, even the digging, Jesus did the digging. Jesus got his hands dirty. Jesus got in the dirt. Like he said to his disciples, you're already clean by the word I've spoken to you. You've already been pruned. So don't worry about the fire. Just remain in me. And let your joy overflow as you stay in this relationship with me. See, Jesus, he became for us what we couldn't become for ourselves. And he is the entry point into that amazing life, that discovery of our true purpose. As we stay in that relationship, right? As if we start in that place of saying, We look at him and we consider him and we participate in that life. It's not reform. It's not cleaning ourselves up. It's not working harder. It's enjoying, enjoying, taking delight in him as he takes delight in us. It's remaining in him as he is in us. It's allowing that relationship to be nurtured and finding joy in everything that we do because we have the opportunity in your marriage, in your friendship, in your career. When you walk around on this planet, you have the opportunity to image him, to be an ambassador of joy. You are in Christ, full of joy. So nurture that, allow that to overflow, allow that bucket to get so brimming full that when every time you get jostled, that joy just starts to drip on people and they see it and they say, that's it, there's something there. Let me show you one more image. When I first was working on this, I wanted to end with a a big, you know, uh, sprawling oak, some beautiful like 
gorgeous tree or like the tree of life, you know, the tree of life that's, you know, this like fractal, you know, that just spreads out in all directions and just so gorgeous. But what are we talking about? We're talking about how to have joy in the midst of a broken world. When somebody cuts you off, cuts off when all that you were building, all that you thought was growing, your beautiful branches and leaves and fruit and all the things that you were hoping for gets cut down to the ground. But the stump is there and the roots are there. And God is there. He was and is and will ever be. And he loves you. And he's brought you into himself. Through Christ, you've been brought into this life that will never die. And as you remain in him, a new tree grows. And you find that there is life on the other side of that tragedy. That there is joy in the midst of the pain. And it's real. It's real. It doesn't mean you don't cry. It doesn't mean your heart hasn't been broken. It doesn't mean any of those things. But because you're connected to something that's so much deeper. See, the deeper that relationship, the deeper that meaning the more unshakable the joy. If you're building everything on your career, you're building everything on your marriage, you're building everything on how good your kids are gonna be, how well they're gonna perform, how proud they're gonna make you, when those houses of cards fall and that's where your heart is, that's where your source of joy is, you will fall with them. But if you look away from that and if you look to the roots, look to the stump, Look to the, to the vine and remain in him. Joy will well up from within you. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you and bless you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he came to be for us what we could not be for ourselves. Thank you that you have included us, Lord. You've commissioned us, Lord. And even now as we sit here in these moments, I pray that we would become, become convinced that you are good, that you love us, that you live within us, and that there is an unending, unceasing spring, a living a river of living water that is welling up in each one of us, that springs up to eternal life and gives expression through the fruits of the Spirit. And today we're thinking about joy, that we would delight ourselves in you, we would enjoy you, we would enjoy all the gifts you've given and the purpose and meaning and direction, and we would enjoy being one with you and one with one another and letting the world know that you have come and that you are glorious and that there's nothing like you that you are the only one, the king of kings. You are the alpha and omega. You are the divine word made flesh. And you have risen from the grave and you have ascended and you've poured out your glory. And we live and bask in the greatness of your love. Thank you for it. Thank you for your joy. In Jesus' name, amen.